From coast to coast, women grow up with their bodies being watched and, almost without fail, learning to watch their own bodies. This self-surveillance begins young and for many women feels impossible to stop. It permeates our relationships and decisions, negatively impacts our physical well-being, mental health, and overall quality of life. The Body Myth Podcast explores how we got here, why our size and shape have nothing to do with happiness, and what we can do to find body peace. I'm Ronit Plank, and I'm your host for the Body Myth Podcast. Let's get off of this weight and body image roller coaster together. Welcome to episode five of The Body Myth. I'm your host, Ronit, and if you've been listening for a few weeks, then you know I like to begin each episode with a bunch of answers from the Your Body and the World survey I've been conducting. So over the last few episodes, I've shared some of the respondents' answers to questions in the survey, and this is anonymous. And if you would like to take the survey, you can find it on my link in my Instagram. So my Instagram is at Ronit Plank and you can find it right there in the menu. And if you want to send me a story, a body image anecdote for me to read on the air with or without your name, you can also find me on Instagram or you can email me Ronit at RonitPlank.com. So today I'm going to be reading answers from the fifth question on the survey, which is what does skinny mean to you? And in some versions of the survey, the question was, what does being skinny or thin mean to you? And I I do want to let you know that some of these answers may be a little bit triggering. And a note that today's interview has a bit of a content warning as well for eating disorder discussion. So if that is something that you don't want to listen to, you may want to discontinue now. So here is the question and some of the selected answers. What does being skinny or thin mean to you? Hungry, clothes loose, comfortable. For my generation, that would be Kate Moss, heroin chic, or ballet dancers like Gelsie Kirkland, who wrote Dancing on My Grave. And I apologize if that's Gelsie. It means I'm in control. As I enter middle age, I don't care about thinness, just want to feel good. It means unwanted attention and being seen only as that and not being seen as myself. You are in control and aware of your appearance. I grew up very skinny, then in my late 30s, after having a baby, weight gain creeped up. It used to mean attaining everything I want, not anymore. Acceptable weight. I still believe we were meant to be slender, but the issue is systemic, not an individual one. Too much cheap, unhealthy food, stress, less movement looking more attractive, and in my 50s it means looking younger, seeing a thin frame in pictures of self, 
It means I'm in control. I would feel relief that I wasn't being judged by anyone to be, quote, too much, end quote, too big, too greedy, too unhealthy. This is a limiting belief that I try to reject when I find myself thinking it, but it persists. To not be flabby. Healthy, desirable, what I, quote, should be. For some, it comes naturally. For me, it would be a lot of work and unhappiness. I see myself as, quote, normal size, 5'8", 140 pounds. I have always been skinny, and the critical attention from other women, as well as the unwanted attention from some men, is awkward and at times painful. In my youth, other girls and women were mean to me, called me names, pushed me around, etc., The pressure they were under to conform to unrealistic body ideals caused them to take their self-loathing out on others. We all suffer for unnatural and imposed body image ideals. I don't know the answer to this. I simply know I feel more worthy and accepted when I'm thinner. As much as I hate it, it means I'm beautiful. I'm in control, but also gives me a sense that I'm getting through life effortlessly. Being skinny is no longer a goal, but being fit, healthy, and strong is paramount. To be the latter, the former is not possible. It's an unattainable goal. Cognitively, I know that it doesn't actually make a person happy, but viscerally, I still crave it. Thank you for those answers, and there are so many more that I think I'll need to share on other episodes. The answers are multifaceted, and I feel like the women who responded dug deeply and wanted to really share what their experience was and what they go through. So as always, I truly, truly appreciate your thoughtfulness and your time in taking this. I'm going to start episode five's interview now and another reminder that if you have any kind of triggers with eating disorders, anorexia, nervosa, restriction, or experience with narcissistic people in your life, this is your content warning for the following interview. And now it's my pleasure to introduce episode five's guest. Today, my guest is Kimmy Gilbert. Kimmy considers herself a mental health warrior. She survived a decade-long battle with anorexia nervosa and a cult disguised as a substance abuse facility in 2013. She is currently pursuing a degree in clinical psychology at CSULA and is a guest on podcasts to share her story of hope, healing, and recovery. In her spare time, she works at a goat yoga facility that services mental health facilities, seniors, and private parties. She is a staunch advocate for LGBTQ plus rights and educates others about the red flags of malignant narcissism. Welcome, Kimmy. It's so funny whenever I hear the the goat yoga because I just imagine everyone's like, what is that? This is funny. It's one of those things that I heard about as if I was already supposed to know what it was and I hadn't heard about it like in the introductory level yet. Like people were talking about it and I was like, wait, 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 what? And then I never like really saw it in action or did it. But I have to say, I used to work at a zoo in my teenage years as a volunteer. And I worked in the domestic, like the the family farm area. And I loved the goats. Like I have all these pictures of the goat kids hanging out with me because they were my favorite animal. So, I mean, what is it like to work with them? 
Oh my gosh, I I I love it. I just I just love how excited. It's funny because more adults hire us than children. Like I <laughs> thought it was gonna be like a bunch of kids parties, but <laughs> no. The a lot of the kids are actually afraid of them, but the adults like absolutely like love it. Especially you know it's really nice going into the senior homes and like the mental health facilities. You know, just seeing you know people who are you know, having a tough time, then they see the ghost and they're like, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> so like literally, is it doing yoga poses with goats? Yeah. So like we have our own yoga instructor that kind of knows what the best poses to to do uh, to instruct people on for the the goats to be able to hop on people's backs and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is like goats, I saw a picture of that, but like goats are not light, are they? I mean, they're not light. <laughs> no. So what is like the, isn't it kind of hard to do? I mean, what's the deal? <laughs> yeah, I know. And especially our goats, we were closed during uh, the pandemic. And so they kind of just ate <laughs> quite a bit and they weren't yeah. working. So they did, they did gain like 20-ish Oh my gosh. Pounds. They also have like hooves. They're not like, pa- you know, they're not like paws. Those are hooves. So how is this right, ever like right. a fun thing? It's funny, like. Like me, I'm I'm kind of a weakling, so I had one on my back once. So I was like, oh, this is this is a little much, but like everybody else seems to handle it like just fine, and they love it. And the goats like it because they're kind of elevated. Is that the thing? Like they're just enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, and like <laughs> stop it. And this they're, is too they're funny. yeah, I know. And they're <laughs> my boss told us that they're hooves look for solid ground, so they find the areas of tension in your oh. back and that's why it kind of feels like you know those massages where people you know, like, oh. walk on your back yes yeah. now i get it yeah okay okay so i like get a it deep tissue massage at <laughs> oh the same time. stop it <laughs> i love this okay it's a lot i didn't know about it okay i get it so it's like a win-win it's a win yeah. for the goat it's a win for the yoga practitioner okay <laughs> So Sorry, cute. I just had to share. Oh my gosh, but if I lived near you, I'd be doing I would try it out like cer- certainly. And I there might be one here in Seattle. I should try it cuz I like yoga and I like goats. Yeah, if you were out here, we're the main company uh in the LA area, so probably I would probably be the one to show up with the goats at your Oh door. my gosh, I love it. And actually, can I ask you, is it good for your mental health too to work with oh, them? Oh, of course. I have four dogs at home, too. So animals have been like a huge part of my healing in general. Yes, yes. Okay. As someone who worked with animals my whole life, animal shelters, zoos, aquarium, I totally, totally feel that. So I guess it's it's a good place to start and, and just ask you how old you were when you first thought about your size and began judging your body. I mean, I imagine it was maybe before your anorexia nervosa. Yes, yes. And I know I've been I've been thinking about this question. And I think I think it's hard to give an exact age. I'll start off by saying like, I think I had an awareness about like body size and what's considered quote, you know, acceptable and unacceptable in Mm. society, I guess around maybe five or six. It was really young. My mom was someone who was like, a fad dieter like it never it never went into a full-blown like eating disorder but it was definitely disordered eating Mm. I mean you you name a a weird diet from the 90s and she was doing it you know like did you do you remember what you thought about it at the time like are you an only child or did you have siblings I'm an only child yeah and I just 
I mean, I remember even before she would get up and like go to work every morning, she she would call me into her room and she she would be she'd be like, "Kimmy, do I look fat today?" And then I mm. I'd, I'd be like I'd be like, "No, you you look you look fine." And she would be like, "Are you lying to me?" And I would say, "No, I'm uh, I'm not." <laughs> you know, I'm I'm very little. And mm. she's like, "I know you're lying to me." just tell me the truth tell me like it was this constant like pestering for like 15 minutes until she went to work and so it kind of put the I remember just being very very annoyed and I told myself I was like I am never gonna end up like my mom I refuse Hmm. I like I I don't want to subject anybody else to this ever in my life and so that's why I kind of when I did develop an eating disorder like later on I was so mad at myself like I remember thinking like I, this was the whole point is I did not want to end up like my mom and like here we are mm. did your mom have um, a partner in the house raising you I lived I lived actually in Plano Texas I was born there up until about nine years old where my mom um, left my dad um, and then she remarried pretty quickly when we moved to California um, to uh, my ex stepfather um he was not a he was not a very kind person in general but but the point is is I feel like I I got a lot of my ideas about um body size and from my mom because even I'm I mean I felt like she controlled the way I look like ever since I was very little like I would go and get a haircut and she would always tell them like, oh, make sure you have long layers that frame her face correctly. Like mm-hmm. in, kind of including these subtle hints of like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, like, you know, highlight these parts of her, but not these parts because these parts are quote fatter or bigger, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that can be like a really, I mean, it's, you know, kids pick up a lot and you got, you got those messages. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember I I remember she mostly like she she mostly made me wear black because she would all I probably looked like such a little gothic child at times. <laughs> <laughs> Which now I'm like, "Oh, cool." But back then it was all about like this is what's this is what's slimming and oh my you know, gosh. this is what's and she was always using words like slimming and flattering and I remember I remember one time we went we went bathing suit shopping maybe when I was like I don't know, like 12 or 13, and I really wanted to wear, I really wanted to wear a a bikini like the other, you know, burgeoning teenagers of the Mm. world, and she, she was like, no, I'm not gonna buy you, I'm not gonna buy you a bikini because that, that doesn't hide your stomach. (gasps) Yeah. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, so did you have any family or any other adults around to check her or to help reflect back that what she was saying was maybe not a good idea or were you like was it just the two of you it was it was it was just the two of us mainly like I I saw my dad uh, like my my biological father like on on the weekends and he just was somebody who was never really into having any discussions about size just because he was like no it's important to spending time with my daughter and nurturing Mm -hmm. you know like the natural gifts that she has and I've really appreciated that about my dad he was never very like appearance focused so it so that was like 
that that was a nice distraction in itself no as far as like the body comments i mean i kind of just felt like it i just felt like it was enforced i mean mm-hmm. especially like my mom's side of the family is pretty appearance focused mm-hmm. and just living in los angeles it's it's a very diet culture kind of place yeah that's yeah. true that's true and mm-hmm. so so i'm hearing that you started off by you know, being exposed to these conversations about how she looked and her size when you were young and it annoyed you. You knew that you were annoyed by it. And then it, her comments persisted and her kind of monitoring your body persisted. And so do you know, like, when you started to assimilate that yourself or when you started to talk to yourself that way? Or was there a, a time where you remember starting to buy into it? I, I think probably my last two years of high school was when I noticed that I it, it kind of started to it, it was almost like a combination of her voice and my stepfather's voice kind of became like my own internal critic I would say like my my stepfather although he didn't really talk much about my size he was somebody who was very emotionally abusive I, I still sometimes hear his voice and that's what's so hard is I had to really l- learn to determine like what's, you know, someone else's voice and what's mine because they kind of sound the same. They all just kind of morph into, yeah, that like self-critic. But by being able to say like, okay, no, that's what this person said um, versus like, you know, like what I know to be mm-hmm. true, it kind of, it trying to helps me with that. But yeah, um, I mean, he would say things like, I didn't deserve to go to college. I was a spoiled brat. That everything I touched turned to shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say yeah, yeah. yes. Okay, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, that was something he said a lot. Everything you touched turns to shit. And so it was like the, the combination of like the body shaming and that voice turned into like, oh, maybe I should be smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just, I mean, it has to wear you down because even the strongest of us, if this is all you're hearing and it is your world, how are you supposed to maintain any sense of confidence or belief in yourself? Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, something I'll, I'll talk about too as far as what was helpful in my recovery is, you know, I was talking about separating, you know, the different voices, but there's also something that I learned in an eating disorder treatment called the eating disorder voice and like the healthy voice or the eating disorder self and the healthy self. Mm-hmm. So basically like it, it, it's kind of like having an argument or a conversation in your head. Like let's say in your head, like an eating disorder thought would be, uh, well, you know, I ate too much yesterday, so I should restrict my intake today. That was a common thing back mm-hmm. in the day for me. And then the healthy self would say, well, um, you know, you know, even even though I even though I feel I feel like or have the perception that I ate too much yesterday, today is a new day. Therefore, my body has different caloric needs than yesterday, or I still deserve to nourish my body. Or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you would you would kind of go back and forth because, I mean, if, if you're familiar with eating disorders or, you know, disordered eating thoughts, like, you'll be like, yeah, but this, 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 and this. And so you just kind of keep going back and forth between the eating disorder, healthy self, 
dialogue until you land on the healthy self. Mm -hmm. It sounds exhausting. It it can <laughs> yeah it it can it can be exhausting, but when you're really in that like that place where the eating disorder is like twisting all of your thoughts, it's mm -hmm. it's better to kind of terse it out mm -hmm. that way than to just go with the first eating disorder thought that pops in your head because it's usually going to lead down the wrong path if you don't like think yeah. about it. Yeah, and I mean it in the way that, you know, how tired y you must have just been. You're doing the good work to get better and healthy and you have to go through it, right? Like you have to go through that work and, and go through all those back and forths to get to the answer that will make you, you know, see that you can feed yourself and take care of yourself. But right. to get there must have been so, so much work for you. Yeah, that's why I say I first developed anorexia when I was 19 and well, actually, I'd say more around 18, 18. And then mm -hmm. I'm, um, I'm 29 now. And really, I feel like I've just gotten to a really solid place um, in my recovery about a year ago. Hmm. Um, so imagine, you know, 10 years of battles like that in my mm -hmm. brain all day, every day trying and and not succeeding. But then for I would have periods of, of success where maybe like for a couple months I was okay, but then it would catch up to me and it was it's the it's the most exhausting battle I've ever had to fight in my life mm. you know going into the 18 you know being 18 you know what do you understand about why anorexia nervosa began in full force for you at 18 how that happened for you yeah, I, I can identify a lot of like precipitating factors and vulnerabilities at the time um I, I was telling you about uh, Bennington College. That's that's actually kind of a precipitating uh, factor. Yeah, so before the interview, before we started recording, um, you were saying how you went to Bennington for a little bit. For th those of you who don't know, uh, Bennington College is like a small, uh, create-your-own-curriculum uh, liberal arts college in Bennington, Vermont. The student population is very small. It's around 700 students. You're in a very isolated environment in the woods. Like, the classrooms were <laughs> converted from old barns. Wow. Um, I just, you know, I grew up with all of that, you know, emotional and verbal abuse in my home for so long that I was like, I just want to get as far away from here as possible. So I went, I went over there and kind of all of the abuse from my childhood really kind of came to a head when I was forced to really be independent. I found that, you know, even though I was very intelligent and I could keep up in my classes initially, I mean, the the depression, the complex PTSD, like all those voices in my in my head that I, you know, heard from my mom and my stepfather growing up, it 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 kind of just yeah, it, it it really manifested while I was there, and I had to actually drop out um, mm. and come back home uh, to really to really deal with those stuff, to deal with that stuff like in therapy, and I that's when I got. I, I mean, I just was really depressed. I was like, wow, I was so looking forward to being independent and getting an education. And I thought this would be like my saving grace from mm -hmm. 
you know, growing up where I did and then to see that it didn't pan out, I kind of like lost all self-esteem and Hmm. that's when I, I always had this belief. I was like, well, if I just move somewhere else, all my problems are going to, are going to go away. You're not alone. You're not alone. I think a lot of, I think that is really persistent in our culture. It's a very American thing too. And that expression, wherever you go, there you are. I mean, I just learned that again and again and again. And it's so, it seems so simple, but it's really, really hard to learn. Oh yeah. I've tested that quote many times. I was like, they don't know what they're talking They haven't moved here to this state, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I, here comes round two of trying to do that. So after, yeah, I dropped out of Bennington, I decided to go live with my aunt and uncle in a really rural small town in Massachusetts. It was ironically called Plainville. It was uh-huh. very accurately named. <laughs> there was nothing. It was once again, I don't know why I kept thinking choosing a very isolated environment would yeah. help my depression. You know, I, I also want to ask you, when you went back home, I mean, I really, I want to ask you this and it might be painful and, you know, you don't have to answer, but when you dropped out of Bennington, and I, did you go back and live with your mom? And, and was her husband there still? Yeah. I, th- this is painful, but I, but I do want to talk about it. I think it's important. So she had actually left my stepfather by that point. So I was around 18. I remember I got a phone call when I was at Bennington. She was like, she was, she was like I finally did it. I, like, I left the bastard. And I was like okay, I'd been asking you to do that since I was very little, ever since he started abusing uh, both of us uh, from basically the point that you got married when I was about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. But good for you. She's like, well, I I thought I was doing the right thing by, you know, doing it while you were off at college so Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to deal with it. And I was like, well, by the time I'm, you know, I'm already an adult. What good would Mm -hmm. that do me like why would I care at this point you know it's just interesting how she thought like I was going to be so excited as an mm-hmm. adult like mm-hmm. that would have been great to have heard yeah it was a little bit too late right I mean I right. think that's where you're going with this it's like well that's great but you could have been this could have helped me and you a lot more if if I could have been raised without this guy right absolutely so actually I was I was more mad than I was like happy or happy for her but the point is it was a very weird situation when I ended up going uh, back to California to live with her she was afraid of my stepfather coming back to physically abuse her or harm her in some way Um, so she had my biological father move into the guest room as a tenant and pay her rent and my little childhood heart you know was like oh my god my family is is back together like I always wanted but it was not like that at all I got there and it was so tense it was so awkward I I couldn't I couldn't stand it it was like it it was almost like reliving having Mm -hmm. to go through their divorce where I was put in the middle Mm -hmm. like as an adult and Mm -hmm. I was like you know, I was still trying to recover from the fact that Bennington didn't work out. And so that's when I decided to move with my aunt and uncle to uh, Plainville, Massachusetts, because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's when you left. So it's, it's, I, I'm really feeling for the you that was really trying so hard to find a place and make your life what you wanted it to be. And then, you know, you, you've got this shadow of your family and sort of, you know, the pain and the abuse in your family and you're just trying to get your legs under you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really was hoping that it was going to be this great thing where now, even if like my parents couldn't be married, that they could at least be friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that was, that was not the case. So, so you go to Massachusetts, you're in this tiny town. Right. Very, like, once again, yeah, very isolated, very small population. I had just remembered that as a kid, I would go there every summer to visit. This is my dad's side of the family, and I love my dad's side of the family. So mm. shout out to the Gilberts here. <laughs> um, it's funny because my, my cousin on that side, too, is a, is a therapist, so oh. I'm sure she'll listen to this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just remembered it being this magical experience every summer. Um, you know, the, uh, they had friends who had a lake house, and we would go boating and do all these fun things. But I kind of forgot that, you know, now we're all adults and we all have our own separate lives. Um, mm -hmm. So I went there, you know, it was not that magical, mm. fun childhood that I had um, remembered. I lived with my aunt and uncle and their youngest daughter, my cousin. And it was hard because they were arguing constantly, my aunt and uncle. Like, it seemed like their marriage was kind of a little rocky. And so, and I had just, you know, left that situation back mm. at home. And then I was in the middle of that and their house was like, I guess, uh, metaphorically and physically falling apart. Like I mm. remember stepping on like, like rusty nails and there was like mold and mm. it just was not, it was, it was a very depressing environment and mm. they really struggled with binge eating. And I, I would, you know, and I think that was, that was a way to deal with, you know, like their, their depression, like. I guess our, our family in general has some very disordered eating mm -hmm. on both sides. And I didn't know anybody out there. I, I grew up on the West Coast. The East Coast is a, was like a total culture shock to me. It was <laughs> when I went to Bennington in Vermont. And it was when I went to Plainville, Massachusetts. I'm not used to, like, it's, you know, most of the time here in California, it's 75, 80 degrees. <laughs> um, over there, uh, they got all the seasons. <laughs> you know, win winter being a very tough one for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I was trying to get used to that. I didn't know anybody. I had no friends. I had remembered this comment when I came back from Bennington, when I went to my friend's party. Um, this was back in California. And my friend came up to me and he was like, wow, you look amazing. You lost so much weight. How good do you feel? And I wasn't even trying to lose weight while I was at Bennington. I was just really depressed. And I guess naturally, like my appetite was lower. So mm -hmm. I didn't really have body size in mind. Mm -hmm. But I guess that was an unintended, unintended uh, result. And that kind of planted a seed in my mind a little bit. And I remember I was like, oh, this could be an interesting project for me to do. I don't have any friends. This will give me some structure. This will give me some discipline. Like, I really, like, 
A quote that I really like is that recovery gives you everything your eating disorder promised that it would. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that's so true. Like, you know, by changing my body size, by making myself smaller, I really thought that I was going to I was going to feel valuable. I was going to feel important. I was going to feel powerful. And and the thing that's tough is that at first I did feel all those things. It, the, the thing is, though, is that those those feelings are temporary. Uh, they definitely don't stick around. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I was so just kind of like an addict trying to get back to that first high. Like mm-hmm. I just kept wanting to feel that, those initial feelings again. So I, I like every time I would relapse, I would just keep thinking, well, if this worked for me at some point, like why can't it work for me again? Yeah, and you're you were in Massachusetts when you started to actively yes. restrict and try to. Did your family notice anything? Um, they didn't really say anything to me about it. I think they were really caught up in what was going on, like, uh, yeah. like their own issues to really mm-hmm. like pay attention to that. And that's not to say that they didn't care. I really just think they were going through a lot. I remember confiding in the, the cousin that I mentioned, who's actually a therapist. I remember con- confiding in her about that. And she kind of opened up to me about like, she's had similar struggles um, mm-hmm. with that. And so I felt like we, we really, we really bonded and got closer while I was there. But yeah, I mean, it really felt I really felt completely alone and it was, it was, it was frightening. And I, I started delving into this really dark kind of underground online world of anorexia that would, I mean, it became my obsession. I, I, it's hard for me to talk about because I have so much shame around participating in that community and and knowing that I I might have negatively you know affected somebody else who was suffering too mm-hmm. it, it's something that's still so hard for me to talk about because obviously that was never my intention to hurt somebody else I was just really I was alone and I was looking for people who understood me and I, I don't know if if you know what community I'm referring to I think I do, and I don't know what are the best practices in terms of mentioning it or not. Like, is it considered right. not good to talk about it because we don't want to send people there? I know, and that's why I'm kind of dancing around it. I am going to um, let you be the judge because this was your experience, and you know more about recovery than I do. Yeah, I I think it's really, I, I think it's really hard, though. I think, in general, like, the online eating disorder, like, recovery community they all kind of have their own beliefs about what is and isn't okay to share. So it's hard for me to like, Mm. you know, you know, I think at the end of the day, you kind of have to use your own discretion. Yeah. So, so these are like, these are communities online that foster, like they, they exchange, as far as I understand, they exchange ideas for making you really successful at your eating disorder, right? Yeah, that's not the recovery community. That's yeah, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> I was like, stuff, no, 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 no. That's the stuff we're not we're not going out of our way to name. It's like a yes. community where you can find resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Yes, yes, yeah. And I'm sure pe- people who are very 
you know, who have suffered with an, an eating disorder or, no, or know somebody, probably, I probably don't even have to name it. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. pretty obvious to them at this point. But yeah, that still exists. Those, those communities, they are out there. They're not as well known, but you can find them. It's, it's really sad that you can. But yeah, I mean, I found a, a sad, warped community in that while I was out there. And I, I mean, my eating disorder just, it took on a life of its own. And I had to actually go back home after about six months. And I had to see a therapist who specialized in eating disorders for the first time. And I I actually kept getting worse and worse and worse before I finally went to treatment. Because at that point, when I moved back home, my dad had... Well, actually, I think my dad was still living there at that point, but I was living with my mom, and my mom is kind of the main trigger behind mm-hmm. all of the eating disorder behaviors. Like, she kind of taught me a lot of the behaviors that I was doing growing up. There were always rules about around food. Mm-hmm. Um, even when we would go out to eat, you know, she would, she would give me certain, like, tips and tricks, the same ones that I would see on these really dark websites. And so I kind of already had those rules ingrained and eating disorders thrive on rigid rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's so it's I just keep getting, um, you know, reminded about your story, which is that, you know, you're trying to get you're trying you go home because you need help, you know, whether or not you're ready for that or not. But home is the place where things can get worse because of your history with your mother so it's you know the things that are supposed to help you know theoretically with a with a parent-child relationship hopefully are actually making things worse and the person who's supposed to maybe take care of you isn't able to even take care of themselves in this way right right so I really and she yeah I mean she kind of encouraged the behaviors to be honest with you like I, I think I, part of it was I was subconsciously trying to get her attention because it seemed mm. like she was only noticing me when I, was in, when I was in pain that she just couldn't ignore. Otherwise, like, her priorities were always kind of elsewhere as far as, like, like dating and having a career. It was kind of like I always came last, and I so badly wanted her to love and care about me that I when when she when she finally saw me it just kept the behaviors going yeah yeah and and so when you got back you saw this therapist and you got worse and worse and so who helped you I mean how long did this go on for I was just you know and and this is to no fault of the therapist she was a wonderful person and is great and she's a great person in the eating disorder recovery field um it was just I I didn't fully recognize at the time that I had a huge problem. Like, I really Mm -hmm. hid it behind, like, oh, you know, I'm just, like, a really healthy eater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went – I I took on the strictest dietary lifestyles possible, and I convinced myself it was part of my identity because Mm -hmm. the eating disorder serves a lot of different purposes. And for me, a big one was identity. I didn't know who I was. Um, who I thought I was, was essentially a piece of shit. And I thought, if I could just prove that I'm good at this one thing, maybe I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, right. You knew how to do this and you could see you could see things working the way you wanted them to, right? So it's like that is I mean, it's a very complex it's a very complex thing and I don't want to even try to explain it cuz you're the expert, but it's it's so about control, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you know, for so long I felt like I did not have control over the abuse that was going on at home that I felt like I I I wanted that power back. Yes. Yes. I understand that. So then, and I see what you're saying, because if, if the patient isn't ready to do the work, it doesn't matter how great the therapist is and they can work really hard, but it's so easy to hide in therapy for anything. Really, you can really not do the work. I mean, I spent years in therapy for other reasons and I wasn't really getting down to business for a while. Yeah. I mean, because the, the work, honestly, like it, it's, it's the hardest work you'll ever do in your life. Um, mm -hmm. it's, but you know, I always say I'm so grateful that I went through this experience because I think so many people walk through life without, you know, taking time to pause and do this internal work, you know, like we live in a society where it's, it's just like, go, 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 let's multitask and do a billion different things at once. And so I think people skip doing that deeper, more fulfilling work that makes life meaningful and you get to know yourself yes yes and everything can come out of that like one, once you start to get more clarity and, and centered about your own habits and what you need to work on so many other things can change in your life and unfortunately all these other ways that we try to change our lives whether we're buying things or restricting or we're doing diets or we're changing our outside they really won't have an enduring effect I don't think Right. And I think, you know, and it extends out to, you know, our relationship with others, too. Like, I, I don't like that quote where it's like, you know, if you don't love yourself, like you like can't love others or whatever it is. That's not true. But if you do the internal, if you do the internal work, you're able to have better relationship dynamics and patterns in your life mm -hmm. because you have that you have more awareness around, you know, your own strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And so you, you were actively battling anorexia nervosa for how long would you say? It's been a long, it's been a long road. Um, I, it, it's hard because it was so, it, it was so on and off, um, for the past, like I said, 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just got to a place in this past year where I'm, I'm very solid in my, in my recovery. I feel good. I, you know, I see that I'm moving forward. I got into a really good school and pursuing my dreams, which, mm -hmm. you know, these things were never, I, I, I never could have imagined. Um, but yeah, on and off for the past 10 years, I, it, it was a really difficult life because I felt like all of my peers were out you know, live, living their lives, going, going to college, dating, you know, doing things that people do in their, in their twenties. And mm -hmm. I was watching it all from behind, you know, uh, hospital windows and residential treatment centers. I mean, I, I went, I can't even count the amount of times that I, I ended up in really like life compromising situations. So like for me to even say that, that I'm here and I'm not only alive, but I'm thriving is amazing. Mm -hmm. 
Did you take yourselves to those programs? Who who was helping you get into those programs when you were in such bad, you know, straits, such dire straits? Um, I I took myself. I would mm-hmm. get to this point where mm-hmm. I was like, this is totally unmanageable. I can't live another like I was always one of those person that waited until it got like the worst it could mm-hmm. possibly get to. Mm-hmm. To get mm-hmm. myself in there but it kind of shows like you know the the resiliency of the human spirit like when you're you know when you are literally dying there's still something within you that's like no you you have to live mm-hmm. did you you know I know we're going to talk a little bit about the differences in body neutrality and yeah. acceptance but I'm curious what's your relationship with your mother now it's not, I'd love to say it's all better now, but uh, it's it's not. It's still a very estranged relationship. Um, we talk once every couple of months. We'll meet up once every couple of months. But I, I just had to put those boundaries in place with the mm-hmm. amount of time that I spend with her and talk to her um, to protect myself. Mm. I'm not surprised at all. You know, when, when I ask the question, uh, you know, I'm asking in an open-ended way, though my suspicion was that, you know, unless your mom changed greatly in her own behavior, I don't know how you could be close with her. Yeah, and she, I've had to, in therapy, I've had to learn to accept that she is not going to change. She is the way that she is because – her and I have tried family therapy multiple times and each therapist was like, I don't even think this is helpful anymore. Like she needs to see her own therapist and she mm. refuses to do so. Mm. What about your dad? Do you see him or do you, are you in touch with your father? Yes. Um, I actually uh, live with him and my stepmom. Um, oh. While, you know, while I'm, while I'm in school. Um, and he's been nothing but like loving and supportive and I, I couldn't have done any of this without him. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you have, um, a parent there, a guardian, you know, to, to look out for you, to support you, you know, everyone, Absolutely. I just feel like everyone, not everyone gets at least one, but I feel so strongly that we all need at least one. Right. Yeah. And that's why it like hurt it. It hurts my heart when many of my friends don't even have, you know, one family member that they can rely on because they're, they, uh, they're members of, you know, like the queer community and a lot Mm. of their parents have turned their backs on Mm. them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, you know, I always love having my friends come over and like invite them into my family and, Mm. you know, receive the love that they deserve. Mm hmm. It's, it's really an important point you're making, and it's so hard. It's so hard to get through this life, especially if you don't have a foundation of people who can tell you how much you matter and that you are worth it, you know, and you that started to be enacted in your own body against yourself because of the way you were led to think about yourself. You know, it's you give someone enough of those messages over time and they will assimilate them. Yeah, yeah, and it's spe- yeah, especially children really will um, kind of soak up the messages uh, that are 
around them. And that's why I, you know, that's why I say to parents, especially mind what you're saying about your own body um, in front of your children. And like, they even pick up on like disordered eating habits too, very young. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for parents to, to do the work around that. Yes, that's so important. And, you know, it, it, it won't always happen that if you don't do those things, your kid will be fine. There's plenty of parents who feel like they didn't say anything or act strange around food and their kids get it. But you certainly can uh, give it to your children more easily if you're doing it yourself. And I think so many of us grew up with that kind of body talk and monitoring of food and size. So when we first connected, Kimmy, you you made a really important point that I, I really want to give you some time to talk about. Because I think, you know, with this body positivity movement and health at every size and eating disorder awareness, there's a lot of talk about body positivity. But I think you made the distinction for me about body neutrality, the difference between body neutrality, body acceptance, and body love positivity. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. I think it's an important distinction because body positivity or uh, body love, I kind of distinguish between the two because body positivity, as you mentioned, is also a social movement that argues for equal rights for all body sizes in different parts of society where, you know, things aren't as accessible and there's discrimination. Um, But I would say body neutrality is still an amazing place to get to. And that's, that's where where I'm at, because I used to beat myself up. I'm like, what if I never get to a point where I absolutely love Mm. my body, you know, and Mm -hmm. that isn't that's a great goal to strive for. But you don't have you don't have to get like, don't beat yourself up if you're not there. Body neutrality is basically saying like, you know, I may not love my body or how it looks, but, you know, it, it's it's irrelevant to who I am as a person and I'm still going to treat my body with respect whether or not I like it. Mm-hmm. And that's so important. I just hadn't even thought about neutrality. Like I didn't know much about it, but I think you're so right because in this, in this climate, it's so hard to just – be a hundred percent on board with how we look when we're always being confronted. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just think that that's, that's, you know, by constantly pressuring yourself, like, or beating yourself up, like, why can't I love my body? You're actually like kind of doing the opposite, Mm -hmm. which is show yourself love and compassion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are there ways to talk about our bodies or, or ways that you kind of watch yourself in your thinking? Do you do anything that's corrective when you are having a thought that's challenging? Do you have, you know, things that you've learned that you would suggest or think that might be helpful for people listening when, when they have sort of a, a bubble of a thought come up that, that is really disparaging of themselves? Like what's what's something that people could do to help mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really hard work. And at first, you can feel like you're being like disingenuous or like cheesy about it. Like <laughs> When I talk about, you know, like self affirmations or things like that. But I mean, f- for me, even just being like, you know what, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I have legs so I can drive a car, you know, mm-hmm. like literally, and, and I know, I know that can be hard for people who, you know, also have uh, disabilities, but just recognizing, like, 
like the things like your body can't your your body can do for you mm-hmm. um while also kind of saying you know I may not love my body today but hey, like yesterday I was like hey I got an A plus on this project proposal I am smart mm-hmm. you know or like or you know I I have yeah, I guess it kind of goes along with like making a gratitude list for yourself as well. Like I look, I look, I'm like, I have, I, I live with my dad and my stepmom who absolutely love and support me like mm-hmm. for, for who I am, even, even if I don't see those things all the time within myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something, it's like little steps, little grateful steps that can maybe build on, on themselves, right? Like you just slowly, slowly, you know, it helps. Yeah, I mean, like, breaking it down to as basic and as simple as even, I mean, I used I used to joke in treatment, I was like, I like my elbows, <laughs> you know, I like my eyelash, like, mm-hmm. and they would be like, really, you can't do any, but, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, yeah, I'm trying here. You're like, I'm trying, yeah, exactly, come yeah, on. <laughs> there's still body parts. It's you've been through so much, and you know I I know that everyone comes to these experiences differently, and I just feel like you've really outlined. And of course, your story is very complex, and there's so much that we could talk about, and I would love to talk more with you because you know how you got here and how you are where you are now took so many different steps, and I I can hear in the way you talk about it how hard the work is, and it's hard to live in this culture when you're in recovery. And thank goodness, you know, I really got so much from your story about how you kind of outlined how this started. And I really see this trajectory of this young girl. And my, you know, it's it's hard to hear because as a mom, you know, and as a daughter myself, I just feel so much for you. Like how many times along the way, maybe your path could have been changed had you gotten what you needed you know, from the people who are supposed to take care of you, you know, it might have gone a long way. And when you think back to your young self, whatever age you want to think about, what is something you 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 would love would have loved to have told the younger you about yourself that might have helped? Oh my god, you're gonna make me cry! I'm like, oh man, yeah, I wish I had known someone like you <laughs> back mm-hmm. in the day. I would I would tell my younger self that. All of that time just beating yourself up about about who you are and and what you look like and just focusing so heavily on body shape and body size and trying to manipulate that. They're all just distractions from the great future that you're going to have because, you know, I, I know it's not helpful to kind of sit here and play like the what if game. But if, you know, I I didn't struggle with life-threatening eating disorder and other experiences, like, like, I I, would, like, I would have, I would have seen myself more clearly for the amazing and intelligent and creative person that I am today. Like, I would just remind my younger self that all of these things are just distractions and deterrence from how valuable I really am. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me too that, you know, the little the little moments and glimmers we might be able to give 
people who are younger than us or people who are struggling just might help them ever so slightly, right? Like mentors, if, if like for people listening, if you're in a position to to just guide a young person or give them that sense of confidence so that they can maybe use it as a touchstone for these times, you know, it all every bit helps, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Kimmy, where where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and follow you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very open and I love connecting with people, especially if they can relate to anything that I've said. The only social media I have is Instagram, which is just um, my my first name underscore my last name. So that's Kimmy, K-I-M-M-I-E underscore Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T. And my email is kgilbert at bennington.edu. <laughs> I know that is very ironic considering I dropped out, but, you know, they let me keep the email, so I'm using it. <laughs> I hope they don't listen to this episode. Um, <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for being my guest and for sharing this story with me and for taking the time to just really, really – explain how you survived and, and where you are now. And I'm just grateful to have had this time with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is the first time that I've talked specifically about my eating disorder recovery on a, on a podcast. So, I mean, this was really healing for me as well. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into The Body Myth. If you'd like updates, want to complete the Your Body in the World survey, or have a body image anecdote you'd like me to read on air, please visit the link in the show notes or find the link in my Instagram profile at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so that others can more easily find The Body Myth. Thank you so much for being here. 